Hey everybody, welcome to the iFreak Show. Today in our panel we have Peter Whitam. Hello from Texas. Uh, this is James Zuber calling in from Minneapolis. And we have a guest today. Please welcome Rob Whitaker. Hi. So Rob, this is the first time you've been on the show. Can you tell us a little bit, a little bit about yourself? Uh, so I'm an iOS engineer. Uh, and I talk and write quite a lot about accessibility and uh, digital inclusion uh, and kind of topics around about that. Uh, I have been doing iOS for um, professionally for around about two years now, um, but a hobbyist before that. Uh, and I work for Capital One here in the UK. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. So yeah, we brought you on to the show to talk about accessibility. Can you tell us a little bit about what accessibility is and why we should think it's important? Uh, well, accessibility really is about making sure that uh, the software that you make works for all of your customers, all of your users. Um, it's, it's important really because um, around about 20% of your customers for, for any software are going to have some kind of extra needs but also it's important because it's not just about thinking of disability as, as something different of, of, of kind of other people, um, but essentially you're considering future you. Um, you know, at some point, everyone's going to benefit from the fact that you've considered how your app is going to work with maybe working one-handed, so it will work with voice control or maybe uh, making sure that everything is, is clear and works with dynamic text sizes, for example, if your eyesight starts to fade. Okay, great. So what are the, the main areas that we should look at if we want to make our apps accessible? Uh, the, the biggest one, I think, uh, that makes a, a big difference for most people is going to be making sure that you support dynamic text. Um, it's been in iOS for a few years now. Um, Apple have supported it in all of their apps really, I think since iOS 10 onwards. So you'll never see an iOS, uh, uh, one of Apple's apps that has truncated text when you've got the text size up, for example. Um, it's really important to make sure that you, when you're testing your app, you turn up the text size and make sure that everything still looks and reads okay. Um, that is great for a number of reasons, partly because dynamic text size is not just about making it better for people who uh, need to have a larger text size, but a lot of people will choose to have a smaller text size as well, so they get more content uh, and so that uh, they get a bit more privacy as well. Um, but that's, that's probably the number one thing I would say um, with that. And then after that, the thing that people consider most, I think, with accessibility is probably voiceover. So that's when you can navigate the phone using swipes and it will read everything back to you so that 
you don't necessarily have to see the content that's on the screen. It will uh, read any of the text. And um, with some of the new changes in iOS 13, it will even do things like describe images to you. Yeah, could you briefly just talk about some of those new features that we see in iOS 13? You know, I know there's lots of videos out there now showing the, you know, demonstrating the voiceover and the voice control in particular. So how do you feel about that? Do you feel that Apple is making, you know, good strides in the right direction with these, these new abilities? Yeah, voice control particularly is, is really exciting. Uh, every year in the UK, the government, uh, along with uh, Lloyds Bank, do a survey on people's um, kind of use of uh, digital channels and their, their, their skills and what they, what they do online and that kind of thing. Uh, and every year they, they ask about um, why people either do or don't use the internet. And one of the, the big reasons for, for not using the internet is because um, people have a disability and uh, around about, uh, I believe it is 20% of people who uh, have a disability and don't use the internet say that they don't use the internet because there's no assistive technology that will work for them to make the internet work better. Um, and a lot of those people, it's because they have a, a physical disability, which stops them from being able to interact with um, a touchscreen or a keyboard. And so for those people, voice control is, is really the thing that's going to help unlock digital experiences for them because all they have to be able to do is see what's on the screen and then just say that thing to the, to the screen. Uh, so that's going to be really liberating for a lot of people, I think. Um, but uh, there's a lot of uh, kind of nice changes in iOS 13 that uh, really facilitate that. Yeah, I think the the one that we see, you know, demonstrated the most because it's the you know, the most eye-catching is the one that a lot of people describe as the the kind of the old Blade Runner effect where it puts the the grid up on the screen. Is that is that right? I think it it puts a grid up and it puts a number in each of the you know, each part of the grid and you you basically navigate the screen and controls that way. Have you have you looked at that at all? Do you have any sort of feelings as to whether that's going to be useful or sort of more of a gimmick for, you know, the voiceover control? There's certain areas, I think, with uh, the, that grid view that um, that's going to work really nicely. So um, the example that Apple gave in their marketing video for that was uh, using Apple Maps. And for something like that, it's really going to work well because you can't really be expected to sort of list everything in a certain area of a map, you can't say kind of, you know, zoom in on this particular contour or whatever. It's just too detailed. Um, so for, for areas of large content like that, saying show grid and saying, um, you know, zoom to whatever number um, is really going to be the best way of controlling that. But I think for, for most apps that we would create, if you find that people are showing the grid to not, to interact with it, then you've probably made a mistake with your accessibility somewhere because adding that grid on the screen covers quite a lot of the content because you've not only got the grid, but a large part of that grid is taken over with the number. So it obscures the content that's there. So I think it's probably worthwhile making sure that all of your controls and elements have meaningful accessibility labels. And there's a really easy way to do that as well. Uh, because it's all designed to be completely hands-free, um, you can just say, hey, Siri, turn on voice control. And then you can just say, show names. 
Uh, and if you say show names, it will just pop up a little bubble above every element on screen with the name that you would use to activate that particular element so that you can see if those labels that you've got there are meaningful. Um, so if you've got a really long label, no one's obviously going to say that to interact with it because it's just going to be too long. So it's worth just uh, firing that up and making sure that you've not accidentally left in some kind of image identifier or some really long label that's going to be unusable. Mm, so, so that's interesting. So, yeah, I, I think, you know, a lot of this is, you know, heavily dependent upon, say, the developer and the testing for those labels then to make sure, you know, go through your app, turn it on, make sure you've got meaningful labels on each of the controls or something like that. Now, I'm also wondering because this is very much, uh, like I say, it's very dependent upon the developer and the designers actually going in and setting these values. And do you feel that it's, it's something that's often, you know, over sort of neglected by the developer and it's one of those, well, if we get time, we'll put it in, whereas it really should be, uh, as much of a priority as, say, designing the interface, something like that? It can be. iOS is really good at uh, trying to figure these things out for you. Um, and uh, with Swift UI, again, it, it does an even better job of a lot of that. With things like uh, named controls in Swift UI, um, really encourages you to add labels to, to elements that otherwise you might not have given labels to. But um, it, it can certainly be one of those things that kind of gets missed out um, when you are developing an app that um, you know you just kind of forget to add a label or something like that because as most of us as, as developers, we don't use these technologies every day. So it's sometimes hard to understand exactly what we, why it's so important and, and what we need to do to, to do that. But I'd always recommend as, as part of your normal testing step um, when when you're working on, on a, an element in your app, just enable voiceover or now with iOS 13, maybe enable voice control. And it only takes a few seconds. Once, once you're used to how that works, it only takes a few seconds just to navigate through that and check that, yeah, actually this does work how I expected. Hmm. So a, a part of that process that I'm thinking of for the, you know, checking that an app is correct is the, the accessibility side is there something, you know, how we can do automated testing, UI testing? Are there frameworks or does Xcode or Apple provide tools that allows for automated accessibility testing? Kind of. Um, so with uh, XCUI testing, that actually does run from the accessibility tree, the accessibility user interface, as Apple sometimes call it. Um, so what XCUI tests pick up on is not necessarily the content that you see on the screen, but it's the content that's being presented by the accessibility tree, which is what technologies like voice control and voiceover use. So if you have made a change to your accessibility tree by maybe um, changing the accessibility label to be something different to what's displayed, then that's the label you'll be asserting for in your UI test. Um, so in that uh, aspect you can kind of do accessibility testing because essentially UI testing is accessibility testing. There are also some uh, automated UI testing, accessibility UI testing tools available. I think uh, A-Test is one that I've tried out in the past and uh, DQ, I think, uh, and AIM perhaps, but I, I've not used them particularly extensively. 
I've really kind of tried them out and found that actually in reality they don't really work. Um, they tend to, um, because you're limited on what you can access as part of the UI from an external tool like that, they tend to not be that great at actually finding things that are genuinely wrong and tend to find a, a lot of false positives from my experience. Uh, it's not the same as you can kind of do on the web because obviously on the web, your accessibility testing tool can have full access to the, the code that's generating the page. Um, so it can read through that and, and do a lot more uh, work on that to determine whether it's right or not. Okay, so it does sound like it's, you know, this accessibility is something that over the past, certainly over the past year or so, really has come to the forefront as a very important part of the development cycle. So I guess over time we can hope to see more of these kind of tools develop and come along to, to help us with that testing. Yeah, I mean, in terms of kind of your, your first point about it coming to the fore, I think uh, the main sign of that is in iOS 13, um, where the accessibility menu now sits on the phone. Um, and that is really a change that should have probably happened a long time ago. But uh, now if you go into settings on, on an iPhone, accessibility settings are a top level setting, which is really what they should be. Instead of having to kind of navigate down through some extra menus. Um, it's just there is one of the top options, which that's one of the big issues with, uh, for a lot of people who would really benefit from some kind of assistive technology that they often don't know that the options are there. So by making it a top level thing, that's hopefully gonna encourage more people to make use of some of these settings uh, that will really benefit them. In terms of whether we'll see a development in terms of these tools, I really hope so. Um, I know there are companies uh, that are working really hard in trying to uh, improve what these kind of tools can do, but it's a lot of the time it's going to be down to the information that uh, Apple will provide as part of that. Um, but with Swift UI again, because it's declarative, then perhaps there's a space there for someone to do maybe some kind of accessibility linting on, on Swift UI code, perhaps in the same kind of way that you might do with HTML. One of the biggest pain points that I find as I talk to people about software is deployment. It's really interesting to have the conversations with people where it's, I don't want to deal with Docker, I don't want to deal with Kubernetes, I don't want to deal with setting up servers, I don't, you know, all of these different things. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has gotten a lot easier. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has also kind of embraced a certain amount of culture around applications, the way we build them, the way we deploy them. And I've really felt for a long time that developers need to have the conversations with DevOps or adopt some form of DevOps so that they can take control of what they're doing and really understand when things go to production, what's going on, so that they can help debug the issues and fix the issues and find the issues when they go wrong and help streamline things and make things better and slicker and easier so that they'll more generally go right. So we started a podcast called Adventures in DevOps. And I pulled in one of the hosts from one of my favorite DevOps shows, Nell Shamrell Harrington, from the Food Fight show, and we got things rolling there. And so this is more or less a continuation of the Food Fight show where we're talking about the things that go into DevOps. So if you're struggling with any of these operational type things, then definitely check out Adventures in DevOps. And you can find it at adventuresindevopspodcast.com. So if we're you know, trying to get our app um, improved in accessibility, what are some 
common patterns that don't work well for people that might need voiceover or voice control? Like what are some easy things that a lot of apps have that can be improved? So with voice control, the main thing that I've seen so far is um, labels being too long. Um, so you can, it is possible to provide a voice control label, a shorter label. I don't remember off the top of my head what uh, code it is to do that, but it's, it's possible to provide a specific voice control label, which is shorter. Um, so it makes it easier for people to say. With voiceover, um, a lot of the time it will be that things are maybe out of order. So when you swipe through with voiceover, you uh, it will scan things in natural direction so from top left to bottom right and sometimes that's not how you're displaying things in your app so things might appear out of order um, making the, the navigation a little confusing because the content is just not read in the order that you'd expect sometimes um, it can be that uh, things have been marked as not accessible when they should be, so they're not read at all, or, or vice versa, um, so that they're accessible when actually they probably shouldn't be. But uh, a lot of these things will really come to the fore when you actually just fire up your screen and turn on voiceover, and then just swipe through it and just make sure that it kind of makes logical sense, that it's in the order that you'd sort of expect when you're reading through. And one thing to to remember as well when you're navigating with voiceover is that uh, if you need voiceover, you're not necessarily going to have the context of the visual part of the screen. So every element has to make sense on its own. You can't assume that um, one part of content will can take meaning from a previous part of content. Um, so you can't use, for example, things like uh, rhetorical questions that are quite difficult to, to understand because it sounds like you're referring to some content elsewhere. Um, so just make sure that each element as you read through it is pretty clear as to what it means and what the consequences will be if you activate that control. So it, as you was, you know, describing that, it occurred to me suddenly that, yeah, you have these complications because you know, I may have, say, a, a screen that has a confirm button for saving some settings, and it has another confirm button for maybe confirm this purchase. So as I'm going through and designing that application, I have to be very conscious of the fact, for example, I guess that, you know, I can't just have the uh, a label or an audio label that describes the button as confirm. I have to really make sure that it's, you know, confirm settings or confirm purchase so that there is you know, no confusion, right? That, that's something that we have to take into account that you know, never occurred to me until now when you mentioned it. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, something that, again, people uh, who maybe have worked on the web might be a bit more familiar with, but the idea of being descriptive in links. So um, it's, it's pretty sort of common knowledge that if you put a link on a web page, you don't just put click here, because what does click here mean? Um, you know, you can skip through using a, a, a screen reader like VoiceOver to just skip to links. And if you come to a link that says click here, well, why? Why are you going to click here? What's going to happen when you click here? Is something bad going to happen if you click there? Um, so you would put uh, a link as maybe a short sentence or not quite a sentence that really kind of explains if you click here, 
this is what's going to happen. And we sometimes, I think, maybe forget that on iOS because um, we, we never really talk in, in terms of links that are in, in part of text. We talk in terms of buttons and controls. Um, but it's really important that if your user can't see the screen or if they're interacting with the screen in a different way, that if they come to a control like a button, they understand what the consequence of, of pressing that button will do. Um, and it's not going to do something bad that they don't expect. So yeah, if you have two buttons that say confirm on the same screen, um, in visual design, that might make perfect sense. And that might be okay. But I probably suggest maybe renaming it to you know, confirm settings for, for that kind of thing. Or you could, um, you can edit the accessibility tree so that you can give it an accessibility label that's different from the visual label. So you can still make the button say confirm when you look at it, but when you access it via voiceover or another assistive technology like a braille keyboard or something like that, it will say confirm settings. And that just makes it a little bit more descriptive. So you mentioned the accessibility label. There's also a thing that's read off the accessibility help which is related to the label, but can you explain a little bit about that? Yeah, so I think maybe the accessibility hint, um, perhaps is what you're thinking of, that is uh, something that is read to your uh, to a voiceover user after the label. So uh, the, the label will always be read first, and then if there are any relevant traits, uh, voiceover will read those out. So that would be things like if it's a button, it will read so for the example of the confirmation button, it, uh, voiceover will, will read um, confirm, and then it will read button, because that's the trait. Uh, and then there will be a short pause, and then it will read the hint. So the hint is really to give just an extra little bit of context uh, around what's going to happen, or if there's something that's a little bit different about that button. Uh, so, um, one example that we have in our Capital One UK app is we have a screen where people can see their PIN. Um, and we do that, uh, we only show the PIN when people are pressing the button. So that means that it's extra security, so you actually have to be touching the screen to see the PIN so that you're not going to accidentally um, show your PIN number to someone who's standing near. Um, but when you use that in voiceover, normally to activate a button, you double tap a button. Obviously, that's not going to work for this because um, we need to hold it. So we add a hint in there that says double tap and hold to read your pin. Um, so it just adds a little bit of context if something is maybe working in a, a way that's slightly different to normal. The one thing that um, you should kind of be aware of with hints, though, is that um, it, hints can be disabled and a lot of voiceover users will disable hints because it slows down navigation. Um, so if you are doing something where you think it's not necessarily completely obvious, absolutely add a hint, um, but just be aware that your voiceover users might not ever actually hear that hint. That makes sense. So I said help because I'm working with accessibility on a Mac OS project and a Mac OS term for the same thing is is the help but yes it yes is kids yeah. on ios so one thing that i've been running into with the work i've been doing and you mentioned like creating a, a confirm button and maybe you set the label as you know confirm settings or confirm whatever 
we looked at doing that sort of making a real descriptive thing with the hints and the helps and like that. And then I looked at like an Apple app that they use and how they use voiceover. And a lot of times they use the, the context around the button and like the label is not something that does anything more descriptive than what's already the text on there. Have you noticed that? Um, is that, is that a, a reasonable working pattern or, or what? Uh, yeah, you can um, infer context to a, a button from the other content that's around it. You can certainly do that. Um, it's not necessarily something I generally suggest just because um, to do that, you do have to make sure that the, the full content of your screen is logical for voiceover. Um, because if you then, if you do make a mistake, if you cause a regression later that causes things to become slightly out of order, um, and you're not thoroughly testing voiceover, then it's kind of going to kill that context a little bit. Um, so I think a, a better option in general is just to be a little bit more explicit. Um, but being explicit without being too verbose, I think, helps. Okay. No, that makes sense. Okay. So I noticed on your website you have a, a post regarding the European Accessibility Act. And I'm curious how that you feel that's going to come into play with, you know, for developers in Europe where you now have to, you know, it's, it's no longer an option and you have to follow these new rules. Do you feel that it's, you know, it's going to complicate things like timelines for product development? Uh, obviously I, I know eventually, you know, developers will get used to this new pattern, but how do you feel that that, that now comes into play on a, on a daily basis for teams and developers? So, there's nothing particularly new, to be honest, in the European Accessibility Act. Certainly in the UK, um, we have the Equality Act of 2010, um, which isn't quite so explicit, but essentially means the same kind of thing. that You, you have to consider accessibility for digital experiences. Um, it's uh, kind of similar to the ADA in the US, um, that it doesn't specifically say you need to make sure digital experiences are accessible, um, but that's certainly how the courts interpret it. Um, in the UK, it's not uh, as explicit as well because um, it's not tested in the courts as much as it is in the US. Um, but um, that that law is still there that everybody has to make apps that are accessible. Um, so hopefully it shouldn't change things too much because people should always already be doing this but um in reality yeah with being eu law there is more scope there for it to be tried in the courts and to for that to become a bit more forceful than perhaps the uh, equality act is but uh, i guess the the main reason why i particularly focused on it in this blog post is for for two reasons firstly it's uh, the first law anywhere in the world that I'm aware of, at least, that explicitly mentions mobile uh, as something, as a, a channel that needs to be accessible. Um, previously, everything kind of mentions web, if it mentions anything. And we've just sort of assumed that mobile is kind of an extension for web. Um, but the, the EAA explicitly says mobile must be accessible. The other thing with the EAA is it does have specific uh, categories and certain things that must be done in those categories. So, um, for example, if you uh, work in finance, uh, in you know, banking or, or some other kind of financial services, um, there are specific levels of your services must have 
this level of accessibility. Um, and there are other uh, things as well, like uh, certain transportation services. And the main thing that will catch most uh, apps is anything which is involved in any kind of digital transaction. So whether that is buying uh, either digital or physical goods through an app. Um, so if you do in-app purchases or if you uh, sell anything through your app or if you uh, even uh, allow subscription services or something like that through your app, then you have to uh, meet certain a certain standard of accessibility. And that is valid even if your company is not based or has a presence in the EU, if your app is in use within the EU, then you have to abide by that. Back when we were starting up new shows, one of the shows that got started was Views on View. And one of the things that was really fun about that is that I got to know a bunch of really terrific people in the View community. And furthermore, one thing that happened that really hadn't happened on any of the other shows, we actually got a member of the core team to come on as a regular panelist on the show. We have Chris Fritz on there. The other thing is, is you may recognize some of the other voices. Ben Hong, who's on the official View News podcast, is also a panelist on the show. He's worked for Politico and now works for GitLab. We also have a bunch of other terrific panelists that come on and talk to you about what's going on in the View community. And because they're so closely tied to View and they talk to people about View all the time, they're very up-to-date and very knowledgeable about what's going on in the View community. So if you're looking for a way to learn Vue.js, or if you're looking for a way to stay current with Vue.js and kind of have the water cooler conversations you wish you could have about it in places where maybe they're not using it, then definitely check it out. You can find it at viewsonview.com. You know, I, I think these rules, you know, um, are nothing but a good thing, right? You know, I think it is interesting, like you say, how it used to be focused towards web and how now, you know, we're starting to realize that you know, mobile applications and mobile devices really are sort of the mainstay nowadays. Uh, you know, even though, of course, we, we view the web on mobile as well, but there seems to be a trend of less people using desktop machines and therefore, you know, tending to sort of navigate towards apps. So I, th I think it's only reasonable that, you know, that shift in focus over time will probably become more and more relevant, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and there are certain channels which, um, you know, mobile is now, you know, the main choice. Um, things like uh, Uber, for example. I mean, no one's going to book an Uber through a website. Um, and that's something that potentially could be caught on, in the EAA under transportation apps. So they're essentially saying that, you know, if you allow people to book taxis, then you have to make sure that that the taxi booking app is going to work for them um, and that is quite an important thing really because um, you know people with disabilities will often struggle with mobility and they maybe won't be able to drive or maybe can't afford a car and so uh, taxis are a really essential service for them um, so the ability to actually book one is obviously a, a big part of their life it makes a big difference if they can't do that that makes sense. So what are some ways we can talk about our teams, the product owners, the people that we're working with, clients, about how to you know, make accessibility a priority? We've got the EAA Act, um, but even if you're only selling in the United States, how can we start bringing that conversation? Because I, I worked a long time, like years before ever 
dealing, having to deal with voiceover. And the clients that I've worked with that make accessibility a priority, they're, they're pretty large. So smaller companies may not be putting as much focus into it. Like, how do you have the conversations to say, hey, this is important, we need to be doing this? Um, how do we make that happen? Uh, well, you can take a, a carrot and a stick approach for, with this, really. So the, the stick really is, um, if you're in the US, uh, you have the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act. Uh, and that is, it doesn't uh, kind of set out in explicit detail like the EAA does in terms of the level that you need to have for accessibility for different categories. But it has been tested pretty regularly in US courts that um, you are expected to essentially meet the minimum of the WACAG guidelines, the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines, which obviously by the name they are designed for web, um, but a lot of them do roughly translate to mobile. So things like making sure that your color choice has reasonable contrast on it, making sure that your app is accessible to assistive technology like uh, screen readers like voiceover, for example. Um, and the, the US courts do take that quite seriously. Uh, it is tested reasonably regularly, and the, the companies that fall foul of that do tend to be fined a pretty decent amount of money on that. You know, there's uh, companies like, uh, well, Beyonce, for example, was taken to court about a year ago um, because of that, and um, yeah, because her website just wasn't accessible for, for someone to book tickets, I, I believe. Um, and so, yeah, she got fined quite a lot of money for that. Um, there's currently a court case in the US or... Um, I don't think it's quite gone to court yet, but Domino's fighting one of these uh, cases to say that they shouldn't be forced to make things accessible. Their arguments don't really match up, but um, it will be interesting to kind of see what happens with that. But it is a realistic thing for, for any companies in the US that you know, if you're not accessible, you there is a good chance of, of someone picking up on that and potentially starting a class action lawsuit or a personal lawsuit against that. But then uh, really around about 20% of, of the population has some form of disability, um, whether that is uh, visual or hearing or motor um, or some kind of cognitive impairment, something like that. Then it's, it's around about 20% of people internationally. So, you know, same in the US, same in the UK, same anywhere really. So that's, you know, it's about 20% of your customers who if you're not considering accessibility you're kind of saying our app isn't for you and that's a, a genuine experience of, of a lot of disabled people um, if they find that your app is not accessible they just won't use it because it's it's too difficult for them to, to figure out how to, to use it and they will go and use an alternative um, there are services online websites um, where people will kind of list, hey, you know, this app is actually really good for voiceover. Um, and people will navigate towards services they know are really good for voiceover or are really good for um, switch control or something like that, for example. Um, so they will go towards products that are going to work for them. So you're going to get a benefit to your business by making sure that these things work. Um, but also you're going to protect yourself from potential legal disputes as well. Okay, that makes sense. And yeah, there's definitely online communities where people are sharing info about what works for them with their various uh, disabilities. Now, since we're iFreaks podcast, we're a developer podcast, we've been talking about UI kits, a little bit of app kits, but Swift UI, like how does that going to affect accessibility? 
Uh, Swift UI has uh, a lot of really big improvements, I think, for accessibility. Um, if uh, one of the, one of the big things that I've been suggesting to people uh, over the summer about you know what's one thing I can do to improve my accessibility in my app, adopting Swift UI is really going to be it. Swift UI is because it's declarative. It means that your accessibility tree of your apps are the, uh, the interface that technologies like VoiceOver and Voice Control use um, is built at the same time as your visual user interface, um, which means that they're always going to be completely in sync and they're always going to have the same content uh, presented in the same way. So at the moment with UIKit, UIKit creates the visual interface and then the accessibility API comes along and generates the accessibility user interface, the accessibility tree on top of that. Um, and that step is a little bit lossy and that's where you sometimes end up with things being either accessible or not accessible or not in the right order, for example. Um, and that's when you kind of end up with things being a little bit weird. But with Swift UI, because it's declarative, you're separating what you want to display to the customer. So you know, your buttons, your text, whatever, from how that's presented to, to your user. And so obviously one how is you know, displaying it on an iPhone display or displaying it on a Mac display. But another how is creating an accessibility tree that can be used by VoiceOver. So um, it means that uh, that's going to be a lot more accurate. And one thing that sometimes happens on UIKit at the moment is if you make a change to the screen, uh, you, the accessibility API doesn't know it needs to regenerate the accessibility user interface. So that becomes out of sync. And so you can end up with some content displayed on your screen, but it isn't available to VoiceOver. That content of bug is completely eliminated, eliminated with Swift UI just because it's, it's generated at the same time as the screen. Uh, so that's going to make a big difference. Um, there's things like uh, named controls where um, Swift UI encourages you to give a name to basically any control that you add onto the screen, which as we were talking earlier about um, having context with buttons, you're knowing exactly what that button does. If you've got a switch, for example, and you have a switch um, to the, with a, a label to the left and then the switch, then if your user with voiceover comes to that, they'll hear the label, then they'll swipe and then they'll hear the switch. Well, are they 100% certain that that label is related to that switch? It could be that your accessibility tree is maybe slightly out of order and that label could relate to something different. So they might not be 100% certain what's going to happen if they switch that switch. Um, but with named controls, they are intrinsically linked all the time so that they swipe to that control and it will read the label and say switch so that they know explicitly that this is exactly what this switch is going to do if I switch it. And given the, the you know, the, the nature of Swift UI as well, and this, you know, this great approach that they're taking with the, the cross platform ability with catalyst and everything else, you know, I, I guess the other bonus here is if I create an application and I put in all the work to make the accessibility on iOS and then I, you know, throw the flag to create a Mac application, I've automatically moved that accessibility over to the Mac application as well. So I only have to do the work once, which I think is probably going to make this a lot more attractive as well as a technology because I don't have to sort of double duty everything uh, on the accessibility side as well. 
Absolutely, yeah. Um, uh, Jamie, you were saying that you were doing some accessibility recently on on the Mac, and that was uh, slightly more complex than on on iOS. So, um, how are you finding that? So yeah, so past couple of months, I've been doing accessibility work uh, for a Mac app, and yeah, I've I've done accessibility work for iOS before, and most of it was pretty good, even if you know it added a little bit of time to, to whatever feature we were working on, but not a big deal. Um, accessibility with Mac is a is a different, totally different beast. The documentation is not really there. There's really not a lot out there of people that are working with it. Um, we found like VoiceOver works fairly well, but a lot of things just stop working for whatever reason. So it, there's been challenges with it. So yeah, having the kind of the UI kit approach on Mac OS might be an easy way to get an accessible app over to Mac OS. But yeah, that's been my, my pain for for the past month or so. But yeah, documentation, not really there. Unfortunately, that's kind of the same with Swift UI at the moment, with it being so new that not all of the documentation is there for everything. Um, but uh, they are improving it. I've seen there's been things I was looking up a couple of weeks ago, and then I've looked again today, and there is now documentation there. So they are improving on it. But uh, unfortunately, I suspect that uh, for Mac OS, that documentation might never come. Yep, it's been a while. Mac OS has been a while thing for quite a while. But um, yeah, we're running a little bit low on time. Anything else we should cover before we get to the picks? I think I'm good. That's resounding okay. Yep. Uh, Peter, what do you have for us? Right, so my pick here is, you know, I'm a, I'm a big advocate for constant learning and therefore I take a lot of notes. And so I've been using an application on the Mac called Quiver. And the best way I can describe it is it's like a, a note-taking cataloging application for coders, right? So the idea is that, you know, if you think of like notes, for example, from Apple, it's kind of an extension of that. You, you can categorize and tag notes, but you can also define blocks. So instead of having like a note with a, you know, code in the middle that's not properly formatted or syntax highlighted, because it's designed for coders, you can basically put code in line and see that, that beautiful syntax highlighting and formatting. So that, that's my recommendation. I use it every day. Awesome. Uh, Rob, do you have a pick for us? Yeah, so I've picked a, a book that I've uh, started reading recently. Um, this was recommended to me uh, by a guy called John Gibbons, who is uh, an accessibility uh, trainer and tester. So yeah, if, you, uh, if your company needs uh, anyone to come in and uh, inspect your accessibility, I'd, I'd suggest him. But um, I was talking to him about, uh, I'm a hearing aid wearer, and um, it kind of bothers me that um, if you wear glasses, there's this whole kind of fashion uh, around glasses that you can go and pick uh, a frame that, that suits you and you know there's there's hundreds to choose from and you, you can get kind of designer names and that kind of stuff with uh, a hearing aid I've kind of got the choice between a weird shade of pink that doesn't match anyone's skin tone or if I want something a bit more snazzy I've got silver um, and that's what I've got at the moment is silver but um, I'd kind of like maybe a bit of color on there or something like that it seems to me really weird that um, we we sort of try and hide the hearing aid when it's you know you you would wear jewelry on your ear normally a lot of people would and by hiding the fact that I wear a hearing aid it's kind of feels like 
I should be ashamed of the fact that I'm wearing a hearing aid, which doesn't really feel right to me. By making it into more of a a fashion piece or a bit more of jewellery, then you're more sort of normalising this kind of difference and disability and that kind of thing. So um, I was talking to John about that and he recommended this book for me, uh, Design Meets Disability by Graham Pulley. Uh, I've been reading that recently and that's exactly what this book is about, uh, about making things like uh, artificial legs, uh, wheelchairs and and things like that um, designed by proper designers and making them into beautiful objects, you know, furniture or jewellery or things like that. Um, and uh, I mean, the, the Apple connection here is it, it does cover, you know, what if Johnny Ive used some of his experience designing things like AirPods and AirPods um, to design a, a, a fashionable uh, hearing aids that would work for people. Oh, very cool. Yeah. Uh, put the links for the, for the book in the show notes. Um, YouTube, Peter. So we want to check those things out. Yep. Awesome. So Rob, thanks for coming on the show. If people want to find you, how can they find you? Uh, so I'm most active on Twitter. Um, it is uh, Rob R-W-A-P-P. Uh, you can find me there on Twitter. Okay. And you have a blog as well? Uh, I do, yeah. Uh, rwapp.co.uk. I often uh, uh, add accessibility posts on there. Okay, great. Well, Peter, thanks for stopping by the panel. And Rob, we thank you for coming on the show. We, I learned a lot. And, you know, it's, it's a topic that a lot of us don't really get into unless uh, you have the opportunity. So I appreciate the, the, all the content, especially the book, because it's, it's hard to get context if you're not working directly with people that might have a disability, sight, or hearing. So it's always good to find, um, to read people's experience so you can have a little more empathy with your own work and just trying to figure out what exactly to do with disability or how to make things more accessible. So I appreciate that. Yeah, thanks for coming on the show. And for everyone else, we'll see you next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.